Welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Jennifer Brown. As the founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, Jennifer's workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, including Walmart, Microsoft, Starbucks, Toyota Financial Services, T-Mobile, and many others to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. Welcome today, Jennifer. We are so excited to have you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies today. Sure thing, Olivia. I'm happy to be here and I love your title. So let's talk <laughs> Let's talk about what makes a lady boss. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so you were originally interested in pursuing a career in music, specifically singing. And today you're leading diversity and inclusion expert. You're a dynamic keynote speaker, a best-selling author, an award-winning entrepreneur, and the host of the Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. You're also the founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, which means clearly you're a total boss lady. Oh my goodness. I'm I'm turning red over here. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about that journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Oh gosh. It was a winding road. So in hindsight, I'll do the Cliff Notes version. I think one thing led to another, right? And that's often true, I hope, for many people's, most people's lives, even though maybe it doesn't make sense at the time. So I was an opera singer. I came to New York. I trained too hard and I ended up getting vocal surgery. And that was just heartbreaking and terrifying, dispiriting. But it forced me to reinvent into something else. I ended up being a soft skills trainer for a while. I was in HR for a while as a training and development person. And then I was laid off from corporate. And I thought, you know, I really... I think I have a strong point of view about what's broken in the workplace because I'd been in so many leadership trainings and I'd had so many discussions with leaders in so many different companies. I thought, I think I can do something about this. So I sort of hung out my shingle. I I started to think, you know, what could I contribute to this field and what kind of work do I really want to be doing? And I'm also, by the way, um, LGBT. I've been out since I was 22 and I'm in my 40s now. So it's been a long time, but I was closeted as a performer. I was closeted in the early days of being an entrepreneur. And I think this was also an opportunity for me to to wrap my identity and my experience of marginalization and, and fear of bringing my full self to that classroom or to my performing career. It was my opportunity to reconcile all of that and, and get it aligned and and enable it to work for me, you know, not against me. And I realized I could see leadership development through a diversity lens you know, utilizing my experience with the community and what I had learned. And one by one, it sort of, it broadened beyond LGBT, way beyond that. So to this point now today, 
the company's 13 years old or so. I have a team of 25 people and we focus on diversity and inclusion most broadly. So we tackle all kinds of identities in the workplace, like who's underrepresented, who's being challenged with microaggressions and stereotypes of who's not getting promoted. You know, what are the biases that are inherent in all of these workplace practices? We, we get to advise on all that for the large companies that we mainly consult for. I'm giving voice to the voiceless in organizations, right? It's it's the story. My story was one of being closeted for a long time. And I just don't want people to experience any kind of closet. It just feels like such gratifying and important work because I do know that so many people are walking around not bringing their full self to work. They're terrified of, you know, speaking their truth or asking for the help they need or the flexibility or the support they need. And, and that's not when we're going to do our best work. You know, that's, that's bad for organizations and bad for people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, having been in a situation sometimes where I am the minority, I totally understand how scary it can be. So I think it's amazing that just because you couldn't literally find your voice in one way, you were able to sort of find it in a different sense. So that's really awesome. So I work in tech, which is heavily (laughs) male-dominated. And I often find that I'm the only woman in the room. And while it's something I've grown accustomed to, like I would love to hear any strategies you have for making an impact, getting a seat at the table, and really ensuring one's voice is heard. Yes, that is a common experience. I think of it as from the person, the leadership that the person can show and step into. Because when we bring our full selves to work and we honor those things, we actually change the systems around us, Um, even if it feels tremendously hard. We've got to strengthen ourselves through community. Sadly, there are still, I think, consequences to being like boldly yourself and being very uncompromising about that. But that being said, I would say that this is a muscle that we all need to exercise. And we we probably could be taking a lot more risks than we do. And we could also be realizing that people may be able to flex to us better than we think they will. So that's the coaching for the person. I'd also say activate your allies. Know who has your back in a given situation. So you can be in a room full of men, but all those men are not the same. And that's they never are, right? So who can you strategize with in order to feel seen and heard and, and honored in every sort of team dynamic or client meeting? I think if you can redirect some of that bias, you can name it, but you don't always have to be the one that's always always doing the fixing or the feedback giving, it allows you to take a breath and it it trains up and, and asking somebody for support as your accomplice is one of the most like transformative leadership opportunities that that people don't even know they need. <laughs> but once, you know, once they do, once they realize that, because I have a million people on the other side of this equation saying, I want to be an inclusive leader, you know, how can I do more? And so if we don't reach out for help, we have a, we just have this like weird like mismatch between supply and demand right now. We have a lot of people who are like, I don't know what to do. I feel marginalized. I, you know, I feel excluded. I don't feel like I belong. And you have all this other people who are like, I want to help. I want to do more. And they don't know what it more means. They don't know how. And so I'm trying to, I'm always trying to connect these two dots to talk to each other, but we've polarized pretty severely too. And so those are the times we live in. And I think you've got to be very proactive in breaking that logjam and coming together like intentionally to learn about each other's experiences and to support each other. So 
So you're not alone. Seek community, know who your allies and accomplices are. And then I think to choose your companies, you know, if you aren't up for the fight that I just described, like choose your companies wisely. Like, you know, remember that you have agency. Remember that your values in an interview are important. More and more people want to work for a company whose values align with theirs. And often when you're talking about young people, those values include includes inclusivity. I would say, remember, you know, you're in the driver's seat when you're interviewing too, you know, and remember that some of us love the fight and we don't mind being the first and others of us would rather be in a company that's already on its journey and that we can kind of jump in and, you know, paddle along, but that we don't actually have to lead the conversation every day. And so I'd say like, know yourself, like know, know where you're going to thrive and look for evidence of support for people that look like you and identifies you. Do your homework, do your due diligence, you know, talk to as many people as you can that used to work at the work at the company or organization. And just know what you're walking into and, you know, be realistic. But remember that like without us, organizations won't change ever. Like we're all a very, very important um, change mechanism in organizations. You know, the organizations would never have been LGBTQ friendly if it hadn't been for the pioneer LGBT employees who said, you know what, I'm going to teach my company what it means to be inclusive of people that look like me, what it means to recruit people that look like me, what it means to respectfully sell to the LGBT community. All of that happened. Organizations learned because of individuals. You know, while this can be very hard, my bigger wish is, is we hang in there and we develop the strategies to work smarter, not harder, that we hang in there and that we ultimately get to the C-suite, which is what I really want, <laughs> because that <laughs> whole layer of organizations is like none of us are making it there. So that's not acceptable either. <laughs> yeah. And I think those strategies are, are an awesome first place to start in order to get there. Just going on what you were saying about, you know, looking for your allies, what do you think that like we as humans can be doing to be better allies for minority groups in the workplace? Yeah. Uh, so I think um, a couple things. The definition of allyship is changing for those that need those allies. I think the need is for real and consistent and brave, I would say, accomplicing, which is kind of a, a sort of a ally with an asterisk, meaning like I am your partner long-term in this, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm going to not go anywhere and I'm going to accept tough feedback and I'm going to have tough conversations if you need me to. And I'm going to support in, in ways that you define, not the ally defining support, but the way somebody who needs the ally defines it. You know, we often say you're only an ally when somebody in an affected community calls you an ally. So the world is changing and leadership, the definition of leadership is changing. So I would say, you know, be careful of erasing difference, minimizing difference, seeing things through your lens. And for me as a white cis gay woman of a healthy amount of socioeconomic privilege, the lens is that I see things through, I've, I've become, tried to become acutely aware of and make sure, you know, I am not missing or making assumptions about somebody else's experience, but rather I'm curious, I'm educating myself, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. I'm trying to understand language as it evolves so that I'm referring to things in the right way. And I know why I'm doing that. I'm not just doing it because I asked somebody and they told me to, 
right? But I'm trying to get to the deeper meaning of why. And that I'm constantly, I'm constantly asking those beautiful questions like, how can I support you? What kind of challenges could I be a better colleague or team member with you around? I think meetings are a great place to kind of start to pay attention to how bias plays a role in the interactions between people and think about noticing your own, noticing who's impacted by biased comments and decisions and who's left out and talked over and, you know, whose contributions are minimized, who takes the notes in the meeting. <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on. Um, just Google it. <laughs> uh, but then uh, but then the question to me in the measure of whether you're truly uh, can call yourself an ally is what do you do about it? You know, I think a lot of us, we might notice these things, but we sit on the sidelines. So that's that next activation call to action, I would say is, okay, so now you've been shown, you see it, you've seen it in yourself, you've seen it in others, like, you know, it's, it's, it's being harmful to others. So how can you use your voice and, and perhaps your, you know, your privilege to have a conversation with somebody, challenge a norm, tell the truth about something, um, ask why, (laughs) why do we do it this way? Push back on like gender discrimination, notice as a man, notice that there's no other women in, in any given team or project team or um, round of promotions. I mean, there's so much you can do. And you've got to know, though, that this comes with some risk, right? Whenever you step out of norms, you you can make some people feel threatened. They don't, you know, many people don't like getting negative feedback about their behaviors because they, particularly in this topic, they take it personally because many of us hear this and we think, oh, this person is saying I'm a bad person. So we've got to take it out of that and say, look, we're all socialized in a very unequal society. You know, this is the water we swim in. And, you know, we, we're we all going to make these mistakes until we're shown another way. And we've got to be patient with each other, gracious with each other, forgiving. Um, we'd still have to teach. We still have to explain. But I hope that gets less and less as more inclusive leaders sort of step up and say, you know, there's a lot of identities that I don't know anything about, and I want to understand more so that I can be sensitive to a, an experience that that is not one I've had, but one that others have had that I care about in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you were saying about sort of like, there's that base layer of saying you're an ally and then going up the next layer is like, okay, what can I actually do? How can I actually demonstrate that I'm That's an ally? Right. It comes with a little risk too, because everything worth, worth kind of having and anything lasting takes practice and new habit building and old habit breaking. And that's going to be uncomfortable. And so, you know, we have to have our eyes wide open for that, but you know, whatever, like we're uncomfortable all the time. You know, we all know that's a part of life. This is another one of those cases where it's really important to be uncomfortable because that's where we grow. (laughs) Absolutely. So diversity and inclusion is such an important topic right now, yet it doesn't always feel like we as a society are really improving this and creating more diverse and inclusive workplaces. What do you recommend are some easy ways for companies and business leaders to make a change? Yeah. So I recommend that they, well, get in touch with their biases as we were just talking about on a personal level. Uh, I think actually executive leaders and like VP level are some of the least informed. I do think that leadership sometimes has the hardest pivot 
to make. The individual hygiene you and I were just talking about, about sort of practicing, organizations have like hygienic practices too. So affinity groups are really important. You know, you can be a pretty small company. You could be 500 people and have multiple affinity groups um, that are thinking about and focusing on how are, how is the company recruiting diverse talent? Once they, re, they are recruited, how are they how engaged are they and satisfied are they? And do they feel they have equal opportunity here? And what's the culture feel like? So I, I think that the, any healthy organization should be constantly pulsing these things, you know, gathering data, doing surveys, focus groups, exit interviews, um, you know, recruitment survey reviews to say, you know, how comfortable did you feel in our process? Why or why not? Did you feel if you identify as one of these identities or an identity, you know, that you would feel comfortable sharing? Did you feel comfortable, you know, sharing that in the interview process? I mean, I just would be digging into all this because we know, we know the processes have been broken when it comes to valuing diversity for, since they were built, they weren't built to accommodate and welcome diversity, right? I think we're still laboring on the, under a lot of really old mindsets and assumptions and tools and all that. So we really, I think, have to rip some things up, <laughs> not just make superficial changes. <laughs> uh, we really need to question the the way we've always done things and we need to create new processes and then evaluate how they're working and check in with people and say, how, you know, year over year, we should be doing engagement surveys that include questions about diversity and inclusiveness and belonging. You know, I think that one of the most interesting things to do is to ask the simple question, which we do all the time in our consulting. Do you feel that you people of your identity and, you know, have the same opportunities at this company that, that everybody else has? I mean, it's more elegantly worded than that. But if you can ask that same question across the board and you can cut it by identity, you will see really different responses. And that data is very important to then be armed with when you go into the meetings with decision makers to say, we may think we've got this under control. We may think we do it well because we want to think highly of ourselves. It's just kind of this human thing. <laughs> Sometimes for one gender more than another, but that's maybe another podcast. Um, <laughs> and I'm a good person. Like, I, you know, women love working here and we don't have a problem with people of color. Look at that person and that person and that person. And I promoted that person. And, you know, we tend to like answer these questions with these sort of ridiculous, I think, superficial answers. But I, you know, listen to employees and 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 solicit that information and build the safe spaces where they will tell you the honest information because you know surveys aren't always the most effective because they many people don't trust who's looking at the data and who can track it back so i mean there's there's a lot of safeguards you have to put into place to really get the truth but if if you show truth to a senior management team who's knows they're in a war for talent, who knows they've got to attract and retain the best and the brightest, who knows they've got to, you know, resonate with a diversifying world from a market perspective, clients, customers, et cetera, you know, nobody wants to be losing people. Do the work internally, which is the harder work. It's much easier to do external stuff. It's much harder to do internal. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to think we live in a meritocratic society, but in your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, you say meritocracy is a myth. Can you elaborate on that and explain what you mean by it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, the, word, <laughs> the word meritocracy has been 
I think used in my circles with clients, certain people at certain clients um, as an excuse to say, I don't want to be forced, quote unquote, their words to diversify, you know, my hiring or my teams or whatever. And this is like, it's a lot of ego (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it's kind of missing the point that we were talking about just a moment ago, which is to say, if we don't reflect the world we're doing business in, we are going to be obsolete. And in fact, you know, companies can look at themselves now and say, um, we've been hiring friends of friends and people from certain schools since we were founded. And, and that's not a meritocracy, is it? You know, we, we were growing and, you know, we knew we could trust this person and this person and this somebody that went to this school and somebody who could vouch for this person. <laughs> like that is no meritocracy. So <laughs> I don't think it ever was actually, but I feel like it's being trotted out as a rationale for not saying, wow, like we are all like white dudes. Like, what are we going to do about that? It's being trotted out to, to sort of use as a, as a resistance point to doing some of the things that we talk about. So I think meritocracy also implies that everyone is starting from the same starting line. And that is just not true. I mean, when you look at the data about like Joe's resume and Jose's resume, same resume, one gets 50% fewer callbacks for interviews. You cannot tell me it's a meritocracy when literally the bias interrupts people's opportunity so early and then again and again and again at every stage through the process. So it's not at all fair. That that is not a fair shot. So if you want to argue for a meritocracy, then you know we've got to address the fact that I'm never going to see Jose's resume. I'm never going to meet him because we're not going to know that he got screened out. And that's, yeah, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not an equal playing field, et cetera. Do you think the same thing applies once you're in a company in terms of like promotions as well? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, we 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 I don't mean joke haha, but we joke about that women will only apply for a promotion if they've got 150% of the qualifications. Otherwise, we won't put ourselves forward. And male colleagues with the same experience will be like, oh, sure, I'm going to go for that job and I'm going to do a campaign to get hired for that job because I can do it even though I've never done you know, the, the, the requirements. And so how we are seen from a performance standpoint is very gendered and it's also racialized as well. And so are, are we seen meaning like women or people of color, LGBT people, are we seen as leaders or not more often not seen as leaders and we're not thought of or sponsored in proactively by somebody in power to those leadership promotion opportunities. And so if we don't have allies in the process who are who are pulling us in, we will often not be thought of as candidates. And then we won't put ourselves forward because we don't see ourselves being successful in these roles. Because by the way, we don't see any role models in these roles because <laughs> nobody has looked like us in these roles. But you know what I mean? So it's just this like perfect storm that contributes to a lot of us like not getting on slates, not being discussed or being the only one on a slate. I mean, that's not really progress either, you know, because the chances are one woman in 10 male candidates, right? <laughs> like yeah, it's very unlikely, so right? And that's why we talk about the rule of three. We, we kind of think about that in terms of board representation, for example, that 
once you have three women on a board, you've got kind of a quorum, like you have a critical mass of, of difference, at least along gender, where those women don't need to just be the feel tokenized or be seen as well, you know, God forbid, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm here representing the, you know, gender so we can check this box, which by the way, California is going re- to require all public companies to have at least one woman on every public company board by next year, which is a sad and very low bar, but I'm really glad that they're doing it. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, but the rule of three, <laughs> like they're doing it. They are doing it. Yes. Thank God. Um, not enough. <laughs> not fast enough. Um, and that, that one woman is going to ha- have a difficult time for a while. I mean, because it's like, it's a difference between diversity and inclusion. Diversity is bringing people to the table or to the dance, as Vernay Meyer says, and inclusion is being asked to dance. So I go back and forth on whether or not it's a good idea to share my personal life with my coworkers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But in your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, you argue that there are benefits to employees being able to bring their full selves to work. So what's the best way to find balance between our personal and professional lives? Um, yeah, we talk a lot about this because again, the generational lens is really profound on this, that I'm a Gen Xer, particularly like baby boomers for sure, but Gen Xers too. And even some millennials were always, I think, bargaining with our authenticity, right? We feel the pressure to conform or to cover and minimize parts of who we are. If we can hide things but if we can't, we might minimize them. So like I could be very out as an LGBT person, or I could kind of just conveniently not talk about it. Or I could be very closeted, which was the way that a lot of us in the older generations coped. And and I'll just share a startling statistic that shocks people, which is that 50%, 5-0% of LGBTQ people are still closeted in the workplace today. So there's wow, a, that's a lot of fear. That. Yeah. So yeah. you talk about not bringing your full self to work, things like your family, your loved ones, your children. So personal stuff, though, I think it hasn't had a place in the workplace. And, and yet it impacts so many of our lives so profoundly and it impacts our productivity to hide it, minimize it, not ask for the support we need, not ask for a flex work arrangement, feel that it's going to be judged if I even... If anybody knows this about me, you know, it can be mental health challenges. It can be having been a veteran of invisible disability, uh, neurodiversity, being sober. Um, I have a couple of friends who compelled me to put being sober sort of as something they definitely don't talk about in the workplace because the workplace is so oriented around alcohol and alcohol has such a big role to play in like socializing and client events and all of it. So, and tech, as you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I was just thinking like, even I'm an athlete and sometimes I won't drink after like work at a happy hour and it's, it's so you feel uncomfortable. I can't even imagine if that was part of my identity. Can you imagine? And you didn't want to share and you didn't want to get into it with people. And and yet, so you just avoided work events, you know, and that's where I think we we get into trouble because the problem is the you know, rightly or wrongly, the work events are where deals are made, you know, where opportunities are shared, where intel is um, divulged, where relationships are forged of, I think, those sponsorship and mentorship relationships, right? Where people share their capital with each other. So it's just really damaging to like pull yourself out of those kinds of things because you're not comfortable. But I know Another example for me in the LGBT community, like I'll often be the only woman in a mixer for LGBT professionals because it's all men. And 
you know, it takes a lot of courage for me to walk into that room. And technically I'm part of that community, but it is, it's almost like no one has given a thought to where the women are. And so I also want to make the point that biases can exist within communities that suffer from marginalization. In fact, there's all kinds of diversity issues within diverse groups. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. So we can go into that if you want, but I think your original question was, <laughs> what do we share about our personal lives and where do we know where to draw the line? I think, honestly, I, I guess I would, the litmus test would be if it, if it gets in the way of you feeling a sense of belonging in your workplace, whatever might allow you to relax and feel really seen and heard at work by your colleagues, by your manager, by your company. If you come from that and try to answer that question, I think that will show you like, what am I putting a lot of energy towards not talking about that is impact having sort of an outsized impact on me and my life. And then because workplaces need to change and shift around people. That's the thing I wish I saw was that the question being asked is not we're expecting you to conform and we don't we don't care about that. We don't want to know. We that doesn't matter. It's not that. It's literally like how can we keep you here and enable you to do your best work and also feel a true sense of belonging here? And what gets in the way of that and then how can we shift our policies and practices and the way we talk about things um to make you feel welcome. And by the way, so that you will bring other people that share your identity here, because that's powerful and that's important. And we talk, <laughs> we know, we know the homophobic leaders and managers and companies like, you know, Chick-fil-A, we're all up in arms and have been for years about it. You know, it's, it's, it's notorious. And so people know and they pay attention and they share and they impact your recruiting process. And I would say we have to be the teachers sometimes, like we have to be the brave ones to say, hey, I want to talk about mental health at work. And this is where I think allies can play an important role because we can talk about things if we're not in an affected identity, we can normalize the discussion of these identities in a different way. Like I can show up as a white woman and talk about issues for women of color and I can educate people when I'm the one in the room and I'm the only voice in the room that's going to do that. I can do that, you know, and that's, I think, a, a powerful call to action for me. Whenever I, I need to be the voice for that, I will do it. And I do think that at the same time as we're, in, we're encouraging people to be courageous about their own diversity story, they can't be doing all the heavy lifting. All of us, and th us means all of us, because by the way, all of us have some degree of privilege and access that somebody else doesn't have. So to me, this means I need to make sure if those voices aren't in the room, I need to make sure that whenever I hear those jokes, comments, I see a biased practice, I see that somebody's missing, you know, I will be the one to bring that up because it's safer for me to do so because I'm not jeopardizing my, my career, my reputation, my, my personal truth. And I think that would just create a, a more safety for the whole discussion to happen if more of us said, you know what, this is normal. And this is something that's really, really important for us to talk about because mental health is actually impacting. That alone is probably impacting my audiences the most out of any dimension that I pull them on. And nobody is talking about it. So we have, even in that one dimension, we have this like long way to go. And it makes, it makes actually LGBT awareness look fairly mature in terms of how many companies talk about it or whether managers are comfortable or people are out 
there are things that are far more deeply stigmatized, believe it or not, that we have a long way to go on yet. So in your book, what do you mean when you say that everyone has a diversity story, even the middle-aged <laughs> white man? I've <laughs> <laughs> oh, been dying know, to ask this question. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, I know for me, I can have, I can have my own biases um, as a woman walking into, which I often do. I mean, I share your experience. You know, I walk into rooms with senior leaders and I might be the only woman in the room and I'm doing the calculations and thinking, you know, what is the response going to be here? And how, how careful do I need to be in terms of being personal or vulnerable or being passionate and being called angry or, you know, whatever those things are that I can anticipate. But at the same time, what I've trained myself to do is not put all those people in a uniform box, but to say every single person in this room has an experience with exclusion and, and an experience in their life of diversity in some aspect. Just making that shift for me, I can be more patient and gracious and open and it sort of re-energizes me for the teaching that I'm in there to do because I know if I walk in a room, somebody may assume I know nothing about diversity. You know, I'm a white cis woman who could pass as heterosexual and I could sort of sail through the world this way. So I think I don't, I wouldn't want to be judged based on diversity dimensions that aren't visible about me. And so I have to walk that talk with others. And when I've opened that up, to audiences that I think know nothing about diversity, I am always surprised, just always. Like people are living lives that are very, very textured on this stuff. You just never, you just never know somebody's story. And this is the difficulty of teaching this work. It's to say like, we need to see our, spot ourselves doing this stuff and being being like seeing the world through our li very limited lens, our own culture and our own identity and the people that we've known and haven't known in our lives. And then you've got to open yourself up to the fact that my team could be full of diversity that I don't see and that nobody's comfortable sharing with each other. And how is that team going to build trust so that they can work together and feel that esprit de corps and feel, um, I guess, the transparency with each other to to really dig in and put all of their what I call discretionary effort towards the task and not have their energy be siphoned off by feelings of 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 inadequacy or stigma or you know wondering like why am I in the room or am I going to be taken seriously I mean that is a huge energy suck it's just huge so so I think there are diversity stories in all of us. It may look different for some of us. It may be about our military status. It may be about having an a, adopted kid of a different race. It could be um, having a child with a disability. It could be um, having a mentally ill family member that you have caregiving responsibilities for. It could be growing up incredibly poor or in an alcoholic abusive family and having had to deal with depression in your life. Anyway, I mean, a lot of these things, a lot of these things come up. Some people say, you know, I didn't get my bachelor's degree. You know, I never finished school. I, I didn't certainly get the, all the fancy technical degrees that all my, all my colleagues have. And I don't really talk about it or I have a PhD in another field and I don't talk about it because <laughs> I don't want to you know, intimidate or alienate people. So anyway, once you open this up, it just goes so wide and it's so amazing 
to see um, political differences, um, religious difference. Like, it's really um, I'm in I'm an introvert and I work with a bunch of extroverts and I'm, I'm exhausted every day and like nobody <laughs> like understands that kind of diversity. Anyway, so it's just really cool. It's like this. It just keeps unspooling. And you realize that this is truly universal. It is. We just have to, we have to, we have to put out enough, enough examples that as many people as possible see themselves in this discussion. Like that's my goal is to say, you're, you are a part of this and there's much you can do. And I don't want to spend a ton of time in the shame and, you know, the, the bad feeling, you know, the, some people should feel bad <laughs> and you know who you are, <laughs> but, <laughs> but most of us just, you know, we have limited networks. We've been exposed to limited things, you know, in our lives. We live in very homogeneous towns and communities and church and houses of worship. So our workplaces are the most diverse places we will ever encounter often, actually. So these are places to learn. These are places where we can actually do this work. And, you know, maybe we can transcend some of these things. Maybe we can celebrate all of who we are. And, you know, maybe we can achieve like actually happy work experiences where, where people aren't desperate to leave their employer, you know, when engagement numbers are so low. I think a lot of that has to do with diversity issues that's, that are not really being named and identified. Not everything, but but a lot of it is about not feeling seen and heard on a variety of levels. And I know I left corporate, I, I think not even being LGBT, I think it was, I'm, I'm very creative and I wasn't in the right role. And I wasn't seen as somebody that could be brilliant in one role and not so effective in another role. And there wasn't room for me to articulate that. So um and I deeply, I deeply hid that I was an opera singer and artist for a long time when I was a corporate, just starting out as a consultant, because I just thought nobody will take me seriously. And that, that shouldn't be because being an artist is an incredible training ground for all sorts of professions. <laughs> and it's, I'm so good at what I do because of everything I learned in that discipline. So yeah, I think um, we got a lot of work to do to, to change the, the very antiquated world of work, the systems that are inhabited, um, that have not really been built for everybody. They've been built to work for one group of people. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I like, I like that everything you've said is tied really well together, you know, starting by creating a workplace where everyone is comfortable bringing their full selves. And by doing that, people can start to share this information and maybe find more of that sense of community you mentioned and feel more comfortable and less alone in these environments. So it's, it's, it's awesome that it all really ties well together. It kind of does. Yeah, it does. I, I think it does. <laughs> no, it definitely <laughs> does. But uh, some, some we have to like, you know, take some more pauses and go back and, you know, and you've got to meet people where they're at on this stuff. I think you've got to acknowledge that learners are at a lot of different places and, and there's no such thing as I think a bad place on all of this. I mean, cause some people who resist this whole conversation can become, huge champions. If you know how to nurture, nurture somebody along this process, or they have an aha moment and everything shifts. So you really can never put people in a box on this. And, um, it's, it's just been really in, an interesting study in human nature and the comfort or lack thereof with change and, uh, the role of Brene Brown's, you know, vulnerability just always comes to mind to say, we need more of that in the workplace because 
you know, we, we love Renee Brown and we pay her tons of money to come in and be our keynote. And then nobody practices what she talks about, you know, and which is basically what I'm talking about, <laughs> um, just especially leaders, you know, especially to say, Hey, I don't know the answers and here's my story. And I'm going to be vulnerable because I want an organization that's, that is on a belonging journey to really learn what that means for all of us. And in order to do that, I, as a leader, need to go first. I need to share so that I'm not asking everybody to do work that I wouldn't do myself. And yeah, that's what I, I they're like, what, what can I do? And I'm like, well, I'm going to have you get uncomfortable. <laughs> you have to do this. It starts with you. So let's go. Awesome. <laughs> so for my last question, I want to shift the focus back to you, the boss lady. And I'd oh. love to hear what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments, despite the fact I listed, listed so many at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my greatest accomplishment? Oh my goodness. Um, hanging in this work as long as I have. (laughs) No, um, no. And I know so many that have been in this work double the time and triple the time that I have been in. So hats off to them. I stand on their shoulders. I would say, you know, running a company, building a company beyond yourself is very difficult and finding the right people that you can trust and that will help you carry the water and will work as hard as you do and all that. So I think finding finding and keeping the wonderful people I have on my team now, which is now 25 people, amazingly. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, we're all virtual. And I think holding that group together and watching them build relationships with each other and watching them take the message of what I'm about and like run with it like so far beyond where I could ever have thought it would go and being such brilliant practitioners in their own way and having our clients like love them is the most, it must, I don't have human children, but it must be what it feels like to sort of relish in your kid's success and triumphs. Um, to be like, I, I, I held that space for that to happen and funded it when it, when, you know, money was tight and I believed in it, even though I could have given up. And, you know, we lived through the recession of, the, of 2008. God knows if we're going to another one. Um, so, but we've weathered a lot of storms, both external and internal, losing key people, me having to go back to the drawing board and redesign the organization or, or having revenue kind of go off a cliff and having to find more somewhere. And, just the resourcefulness that you need to have your own company with a team and payroll. And it's, it's not, it's not nothing. <laughs> so, Definitely. Yeah. So, but I, but I really wish I will tell your, that your listeners, there are so few diverse owned companies that, that, that pass the million dollar mark for revenue. There's so few of us that have that bigger vision for actually like building something bigger than ourselves. And I, I want to see more companies like that. We can do, we can do that. And that shifts, it shifts like the world when we do that, you know, cause we can show up bigger. We can, we can, as I say, often we can work on the business, not in the business. Like it enables my role now enables me to really think ahead and pay attention to what's going on in the cultural moments that we're having and the news and my clients, you know, and the audiences. So I think if you're considering you know, what do I do with my business, my company, my idea? I would just really urge you to to think about, could you be a leader of, you know, a team and a company? Could you grow that? How big could you grow it? You know, how many opportunities, how many wonderful people could you employ that you could do the work with? You know, could you become a certified 
diverse owned business as a minority owned business, woman owned business, LGBT owned business. I have two of those three um, certifications. I'm so proud of them. So it's amazing. Yeah. So I would say like, if you need some inspiration, like read books like the E-Myth, which was a good, that was where I kind of picked up the working on the business, not in the business. And um, it really, it forced me to think about like, what am I building here? Like, what's my, how big do we want to be? And how big do, do I need to be in order to have the arms and legs so that we can get the message out to the world? It's not big for big sake. In my case, it's really, it's really to me reach and impact and also knowing this, this work is better done together um, for me anyway. Like I, it's hard enough. <laughs> so yeah, yeah kn- knowing that we're, I've got these really brave, amazing, brilliant people that are carrying the brand and doing work that they love under our banner is just an incredible feeling. So, so investigate that for any of you that that <laughs> resonates with. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies. Oh, thank you for having me, Olivia. I loved it. <laughs> For more information about Boss Ladies, go to www.bossladiespodcast.com. Also, check us out on Instagram at Boss Ladies Podcast. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies.